Well, good morning. My name is Rick. It's wonderful to be here with you today. My wife, Sharon, and I have been here at Grace since 1997. And I got to tell you, we're just so excited about our church these days. So many good things happening here. We're excited about leadership, uh, excited about uh, you, uh, seeing you uh, each Sunday morning and other times as well. And it's so cool. Well, my wife, she ditched me this weekend. So she's traveling for actually for a couple of weeks. And so uh, what that means is that I'm now eating two foods, pizza and leftover pizza. So it's, it's really cool. But uh, anyway, we serve as uh, missionaries from this church, what's called here Global Partners. And that means uh, for me, I work in college campus ministry and I get to, <clears throat> excuse me, a lot of campuses around the country. Uh, and so in my travels around the country, although COVID, it's more Zoom calls than actual travel. Not as fun, believe me. But I interact with a lot of different worldviews, a lot of different people out there. So Hindus, Muslims, uh, Jews, atheists, Buddhists, Mormons, you know. I get to interact with a lot of these folks. And there's this <clears throat> uh, kind of thing that I think about. It's almost like a game show. Show us your God. Show us your God. So let's go through them. Uh, Muslims, I mean, excuse me, Hindus might say, well, there are a myriad of gods. There's Brahma, Vishnu, Shiva, Krishna, maybe thousands, maybe millions of gods. Depends uh, which Hindu person you're talking with. And Muslims would say just the opposite. There's only one God. And that is Allah, the supreme ruler of the universe, and Muhammad, who is his prophet. Jews would say something similar. There is one God to show, Jehovah, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers who created heaven and earth. Atheists would say, well, there's no God. We're God, I guess. So show me your God. Atheists would show themselves. And for whatever reason, the Lord has put me in the lives of a lot of atheists over the years, put them in my life, and had a lot of great conversations and friendships with the uh, atheist community. Mormons would say there's, uh, they would show Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but maybe a little bit different version of that than what we might say. So I've interacted with these folks. I've debated them at times. I've been on panels with them on this stage. And uh, sometimes it went well, and sometimes, well, I'll put it this way, it was more of a learning opportunity for me. But who is the God that we show? If they're showing Shiva, Brahma, Allah, Jehovah, no God, who is the God that we show? And that's a question that comes up in our passage today in John 14. So let's uh, read the passage together, and then I'm going to pray, and we'll talk about who is this God that we show. When they say, show us your God, What is it that we say? So we're in John 14, continuing our series in the Gospel of John of the last few months, and starting at verse 7 of chapter 14, and you can read along in your Bible or on the screen. 
Verse 7, if you really know me, you will know my father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. So Jesus is talking to his disciples here, and they're asking him questions about like, where do you think you're going? I thought you were going to stick with us for a while, and Jesus had announced that he's leaving. And they say, well, show us the Father and so forth. And so he's responding to them. And then verse 8, Philip puts it right out there. Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me. Or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I've been doing, and they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. Hmm, Let's obey that right now. Let's ask him for something in his name. Bow with me. Lord God, thank you for the invitation you give to us to talk with you, to pray to you, to petition you for things that are in your will. And Lord God, would you uh, be with us this morning? Would you speak clearly and powerfully through your word uh, this morning? And I'm so thankful that none of us who are up here uh, preaching on Sunday mornings have to create this stuff. It's from the word of God. And thank you that that's our standard. Would you uh, make it true in our lives today? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's go back to Philip here. Let's go back to that question that Philip asks in verse 8. Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. So it seems like Philip is speaking perhaps for all of the disciples here, and they're a little bit insecure. They're wondering if Jesus is going away, like he said, if he's going to prepare a place for them. Do they really trust that Jesus is going to do that? And what does that even mean? And so they say, well, show us the Father. We're used to this Jehovah character from the Old Testament, the Father that you've been talking about for the last three years. But we don't quite trust you yet to be in touch with him, to be one with him, so that your authority will will be in effect here. So they're feeling a little uh, insecure, one might say. Give us a guarantee is what they want. And Jesus seems kind of frustrated. Look at verse 9. Don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you such a long time? Come on, guys. We're getting down the home stretch, Jesus is saying here. I've been with you for, I don't know, two and a half, three years or so, and you still don't get it. You don't know who I am. You don't know my connection with the Father yet. How can you not understand that? Well, last week, Pastor Bob talked with us a bit about who God is. And when Jesus had said, I'm going away to prepare a place for you, what was the real priority? It wasn't the place. It wasn't the what. It wasn't the where. It wasn't the geography of heaven. It wasn't the what's it going to be like in the eternal place. 
It was the who. Who is going to be there? That's what Pastor Bob was talking with us about. That really struck me. It's not the what, it's the who. It's not the where, it's the who. As I mentioned, I'm married to this uh, pretty cool girl. Her name is Sharon. And uh, we hang out a lot. I sort of don't care where we go or what we do. As long as she's there. It's the who for me with Sharon. And for those of us who call us ourselves Christians, it's the who. What is the essence of eternal life? What is the essence of the kingdom of God? What is the essence of heaven? Is it streets of gold? Is it uh, the good life? Is it, in my case, playing golf? Eh. It's who's there. And the who is the Lord Jesus. That's what's so important here. And Jesus, he's kind of exasperated. Don't you yet know me? I'm the who. That's what he's saying to his disciples here. Well, let's dig a little bit more into the who. Who is the who? Who is the father? Who is the son? And if I'm a disciple, if I'm Philip, why should I trust you as the who? Well, that's the same question the early church in the first three or four centuries of uh, the church life that looked back on the life of Jesus and tried to figure out what is the exact nature of the relationship that Jesus has with the Father. We believe in the Father, we believe in the Son, we believe in the Spirit, but what is the nature of that relationship? Who is this who? And that's what they really dug into. So they had a couple avenues to figure that out. One was they looked back on the scriptures that were written in the first century and tried to make sense of the, the, uh, the text about Jesus and the Father and the Holy Spirit. And then there was a kind of a logistical part of this, a kind of logical part of it as well that they had to deal with. So let's uh, go through that a little bit. In verse 9, uh, one of the texts that the early church dealt with as I look back. It says, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Well, that's a unity text. The Son is unified with the Father. And then verse 11, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Another unity text. Father and Son are in each other. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. It's Unity, And then a third one, John 14, 12, again, in our passage here, I am going to the Father. Now, wait a second. You just said that you're in the Father and the Father's in you, but now you're going to him. Again, the early church read those texts side by side and said, how can that be? How can he be in the Father, but also going to the Father? So there's a kind of separateness, a distinctness between the two. And then uh, branching out from John, Hebrews 1, 3, the first part of that verse, after he had provided purification for sins. In other words, after Jesus had gone to the cross and been raised from the dead, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Well, if the Father is in you, how can you sit down at his right side? So that's the, the tension, the logical tension that they're dealing with. That seems like another text that kind of pulls them apart a little bit so that they are separate. And then Mark 1, this is a famous text in these uh, historical studies. Mark 1, 9 through 11. <clears throat> At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. 
Just as Jesus was coming out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice came from heaven. You are my son whom I love with you. I am well pleased. So there you have three distinct persons. Jesus is getting baptized. The Holy Spirit is coming down and the father is in heaven speaking a word here about how he is pleased with his son. So another text that seems to indicate that there's separation between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then the, the church asked questions like, well, who did Jesus pray to? He wasn't praying to himself, was he? Wasn't he praying to the Father? But I thought the Father was in him. And then did the Father die on the cross? What the heck? And when Jesus ascended to heaven, the Holy Spirit came. Well, the Holy Spirit isn't the Father, and the Holy Spirit isn't the Son. So how could they be unified but separate? How could they be one but plural? And the answer after <laughs> 300 years of debate, pretty much, is, well, it's Trinity. So the church fathers then were trying to describe the nature of this relationship. And so Trinity is what they called it. And the nature of Trinity is one being in three persons. That's the ancient formula that they used to describe that relationship. Let me say that again. It's one being. It's one godness. <laughs> it's one substance is what the Greek said. It's one usia is the Greek word in three persons. And notice what this isn't. It's not one God, sometimes appearing as the Father, sometimes appearing as the Son, sometimes appearing as the Spirit. It's not that. That's called modalism. <laughs> we won't get into that, but it was a heresy that the church rejected. So it's not modalism. Also, it's not tritheism. In other words, it's not Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are three gods. It's not that either. It's this middle ground. It's one being and three persons. And so here's how they summarized it in the Nicene Creed. And this is just a part of the Nicene Creed from the fourth century. This is a summary of what the early church thought then about the Trinity. We believe in God, in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made. Notice that little word there, not made. Christ is not created by God. Christ is eternal with God. He is God. That's a critical distinction in Christianity relative to the other religions of the same essence or substance or usia as the father through him all things were made so Jesus Christ then is involved in creation and you can read John 1 and other places uh, for that so that's the uh, ancient formula that they wrote down in the creeds and folks that's our heritage that's how we got here if it wasn't for that, I dare say this would look way different than it does right now. You might think that this is just abstract, irrelevant theology. Let me tell you, it's very relevant. Trinity is the basis 
of much of what we hold to and believe. So in creation, Trinity created the world. And then one member of the Trinity entered the world from the outside and disclosed God to us. So Jesus wasn't just part of the creation. Jesus came outside of the creation into the creation and said, hey, I've been with God in eternity. Do you want to know what God is like? I'm about to disclose him to you. That's what's so critical about this. And if you want to dig into the whole concepts of identity, what it means to be created in the image of God, male and female, of what it is to be a community of faith, all these things flow from this idea of Jesus' relationship with the Father and Jesus' relationship with the Spirit, which is Trinity. And so you have community built into the Trinity. Community, relationship, isn't something foreign to God that he, because he's a good inventor and very creative, you go, huh, community, that's a good idea. No, community is intrinsic to who God is. Therefore, we are community. You can dig into gender and marriage and sexuality, all these things. A lot of them get back into the early chapters of Genesis and they flow out of this idea of Trinity. If it wasn't for Trinity, I don't know where we'd be right now. The Christian church would be in chaos. Well, I spent some time uh, at the University of Utah a few years ago, and there is an institute there called the Institute of Religion at the University of Utah. Uh, it's the Mormon Institute, essentially. So a, a team of uh, Christians and myself, we were there visiting with the uh, uh, Mormon leaders. And I got to spend about 45 minutes in the office of one of the uh, directors of the Mormon uh, Institute. And so we had this theological conversation, and he was like the nicest man you could ever imagine, uh, full of grace and uh, very hospitable, very polite toward me, very respectful. And we just had a wonderful time talking theology for 45 minutes. It was just a blast. Uh, I thought maybe I was in heaven. It was so much fun. Uh, so then we sort of ended up talking about, well, you know, where did matter come from? And his response from the uh, LDS, Latter-day Saint, perspective is that matter is eternal. Matter has always existed, but in a kind of chaotic form. So think about clay on your kitchen table, and it isn't shaped into anything. It's just kind of laying there in lumps. That's the chaotic matter, and it's eternal. And so then I said, well, okay, well, if matter's eternal, then where did God come from? Well, his response was that God was a spirit being and made the shaped the clay into something, into the world, and then God entered the world as a man and then grew into a God, and so I'm getting confused, and I said, well, then where is God now? And he said, well, God lives on a planet and has flesh and bones like uh, you and me. Um, and then I said, okay, I'm, I'm really confused. Like, uh, how do we know these things? What's our source of information? And he said it was uh, revealed by an angel to Joseph Smith in the 1800s in uh, upper New York. And 
I said, well, I've read some Joseph Smith and Brigham Young and the migration from New York across the midsection of the US and the persecution of Mormons and the death of Joseph, the martyrdom of Joseph Smith and taking root in Utah. I've read that history and familiar with some of that. Uh, but I'm wondering as a Christian of, can you give me any reasons to really trust Joseph Smith rather than trusting Jesus Christ? to give me revelation about God. And he said, well, when you read the writings of Joseph Smith, you get a feeling of security and warmth in your heart when you read the writings, and that's how we know that it's true. And, but I kind of pressed the question a little bit, and I, I don't mean for this to sound uh, arrogant at my part or anything. I really wanted to know. Uh, I said, What's my last question to him? Yeah. Well, who should I trust then, Jesus or Joseph, if they're giving me different versions of reality? So you can see how different even neighboring worldviews are when you factor in this idea of the Trinity, that the Trinity created the world out of nothing, not out of some pre-existent clay or chaotic matter. It's all different. We use the same words, but we mean something quite different by these words and by these concepts. And it came out really powerfully and clearly in my 45 minutes with the LDS director that day, which was quite a privilege for me. I was, felt like, wow, uh, they received me in so warmly. Thank you. Well, who is the who then? <laughs> As we've been talking about Trinity here and talking about Father, Son, talking about this spirit a little bit, that comes later in John 14. But who is the who? Well, Hebrews 1.3 says, the Son is the radiance of God's glory in the exact representation of his being. So if you want to know what God is really like, just look at Jesus. I say that on college campuses a lot. I go, well, I can't see God. He's invisible. Well, he became visible. He came as a man from the outside. He wasn't made. He created the world, then entered the world. He's the painter. Then he jumped into the painting. And if you want to know what God is like, look at the man Jesus and what he's saying, what he's teaching, and his works and his compassion and his development of the disciples. That's who God is. He's a developer. <laughs> I'm so excited about that. If you've seen me, he says, you've seen the Father in a sense. I'm not the Father, but if you've seen me in a sense, you have seen the Father. Because I am the radiance of God's glory in the exact representation of his being. Hebrews lays it out for us very clearly. Okay, well, given all that, what are the disciples supposed to do with all this. Verse 11 says, believe me when I say that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. So you slow-footed disciples, uh, this gang of 12 that have been following me around the last three years, sometimes you get it. That's really cool. I love that. A lot of times you seem not to get it. We're still working on that. 
At least believe on the works themselves. So I took a sampling of works just from the Gospel of John because we've been in John here for a few months. So just in the Gospel of John, uh, here's a sampling, and there's others in John as well, but in chapter 2, Jesus turns water into wine to save a wedding and all the symbolism about water and wine and the kingdom of God to come that's embedded there. And then in chapter 4, an official's son is healed by Jesus. And then in chapter 5, a disabled man is healed at the pool of Bethesda. And I got to preach that message. And then in chapter 6, Jesus feeds 5,000 people with just a few fish and a few Loaves, And then in chapter 11, the raising of Lazarus. Holy cow, there's so much to look at here. There's so much evidence to examine. How can you have not seen it? Jesus seems a little bit frustrated with the disciples at this point. These were the works. This is the evidence. And this isn't some pony show. This is not a rodeo. Jesus is doing his miracles for very specific purposes. The miracles are, are acts, A, of compassion, but also often acts of symbolic, redemptive uh, work. Pay attention, he's saying. At least believe on the basis of the works themselves. That is the evidence. And then secondly, the disciples are supposed to engage in mission. Okay, the Trinity is already on mission. And the Trinity is drawing these disciples into its family. And if the Trinity is on mission, guess what? The disciples need to be on mission as well. So verse 12, whoever believes in me will do the works I've been doing. Like, I'm already doing it, Jesus is saying. Now you need to do it as well. And, wow, look at this. They will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. Well, how could we do greater things? How could they, and then subsequently, we do greater things than what Jesus did? I don't know about you. I'm not that good at feeding 5,000 people with a few fishes and loaves. But read theologians on this, and the word we're getting is that uh, they think what this means is that the gospel is spread all over the world. Jesus is confined to one time and place. He's in Jerusalem. He's in Samaria. He's in Galilee. He's in first century. Jesus is saying, okay, when the helper comes here, when all of you get filled with the Holy Spirit, you're going to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. I can only be right here. You will do greater works than I have done. Well, let me tell you a story of how that has happened in my life uh, recently. Uh, as a missionary from this church and hanging out with a lot of college students and a lot of graduate students around the country, I recently had the opportunity to spend a weekend in New Hampshire. Uh, the Harvard business students had, a, had their fall retreat there, and I got to serve as their trainer. So there's this thing at Harvard called a HBS, Harvard Business School, CF, Christian Fellowship, HBS, CF. And the CF, Christian Fellowship Student Leaders, had their pre-fall retreat to get ready for the school year. So there was 14 leaders, and I got to be their trainer for a weekend. So we went up to New Hampshire, and we, 
uh, uh, stayed in this huge uh, bread and uh, yeah, bread and breakfast. Yes, <laughs> uh, bed and breakfast, and it was just gorgeous in the hills of New Hampshire. And what a glorious weekend! And you know, you might think, oh, these Harvard Harvard business uh, students, these MBA students, all arrogant and superior. And you know what? I didn't get any of that from them. These are the most humble caring students who are very hospitable toward me and just thankful to God for where they are. And one of the students that I worked with that weekend, uh, he lives in Hong Kong and he works for a big famous investment firm. And the investment firm sends him from Hong Kong back to his home country of Korea and he does research uh, on companies in Korea that the investment firm wants to invest in. So he has a lot of responsibility. He's like 29 years old. And so the firm sent him to get some more education. They sent him to get his MBA at Harvard. And when he got there, he made this vow. And he told me about it. He goes, yeah, I've been chasing money for five years in this company. And, uh, and that's fine. God has blessed me with that. But I want to take that off the throne of my life, you might say, and put Jesus there. And I want to serve Jesus here at Harvard and back in Hong Kong, where I'm stationed again in the duties that they give me. I was so excited about that. So these 14 students, I got to serve as their evangelism trainer for the weekend so that they could reach out to Harvard Business School this coming school year in their ministry and when they graduate out into the marketplace and around the world. Folks, that's greater, that's an example of the greater works I think that Jesus has in mind here. That the gospel goes to the world. And guess what? You have a hand in that because you sent me there. <laughs> Maybe you didn't know that, <laughs> but you did. And I had a wonderful time with some awesome, world-changing students. And then Jesus says, okay, now on this mission, I want you to pray along the way. So verse 13, and I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. So since you're out there doing my work, let's have a conversation. Let's stay in touch. Let's be a praying church. I will hear. I will answer. I want you to pray in my name, with my authority, according to my will, and pray for the kingdom to glorify God. That's the kind of prayers that I want you to pray this isn't just uh, ask me for anything, ask me for a motorcycle, or in my case, new golf clubs. <laughs> I don't think that's the promise here. The promise is embedded in the context of mission. So when you're on mission and you're praying in and through mission, that's when stuff pops. That's what's so exciting. That was me getting to meet some cool students in New Hampshire so folks, as we wind down here, let me just uh, suggest a couple things to you. Do we embrace the who? <laughs> who is the who? The who is the Trinity. Do we embrace the Trinity? And specifically, do we embrace the Lord Jesus and what he has done for us? Maybe you've been coming to church for a long time and you've been sitting here listening to the message going, yeah, yeah, maybe, maybe not. And folks, maybe it's your time today to say yes to Jesus. I've heard a thousand 
times a preacher stand up in this church and other churches and my travels and so forth, invite people to come to know Jesus, place their faith in Jesus. I'm not tired of it. I never get sick of that message. So if that's you, maybe God has you here for a purpose today. Maybe he's tapping you on the shoulder. Maybe he's saying, now's your day to place your faith in him. Or maybe you're kind of new to all this and you go like, well, I don't know. I'm just kind of getting my feet wet here. That's okay. Take your time. But at some point, we want you to place your faith in Jesus and be part of the family of God. Be part of the Trinity like we are here. So have you come to embrace the who? And how is it that we know God? How do you get to know God? You get to know Jesus. How do you embrace God? You embrace Jesus. How do you have faith in God? You have faith in Jesus because Jesus is the gift that God has given to us. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's what Jesus said. That's such good news. And I want to pray a prayer uh, before I give a closing story here. And just, uh, just pray this prayer along with me. If it's your time today, I'm not trying to manipulate you or push you or whatever, but if it's your time today, if God has been speaking to you in your life and you go, yep, time for me to respond, then pray this prayer along with me. Lord God, thank you that you created the world. Thank you that you entered the world Thank you that you uh, died for my sins and rose again to new life. Thank you that you invite me to have faith in you, to have a relationship with you, to walk closely with you. And I want to accept that relationship today into my life. I want to be a follower of you. I want to do this. I want to be on mission with you. I want to care for the world like you care for the world with the power that your spirit gives. I want to be part of church community, part of the family of God, and enjoy the everlasting blessings of the who in eternity. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you prayed that prayer today, afterward, would you tell someone, don't keep it to yourself. This isn't meant to be a secret, okay? When you become a Christian, it's meant to be told to other people. And uh, you can talk to our folks at the care station afterward and pray with them and get some counsel about what your next steps would be. So embrace the who, embrace Jesus. That's step one. And then secondly, do we serve the who? Are we as a church on mission? And you know what? I believe we are. I'm so excited about that. That's one of the main reasons Sharon and I stick around here is because we want to be part of a church that is on mission. We want to be doing the works of Jesus and do them in his name. I could talk about that all day. Well, one way that I've been trying to do that lately is at the golf club where I'm a member in the South Metro. And I've been wondering in recent months, what is God calling me to do there to reach out to my fellow players, maybe some of the employees there, in a way that's gentle and caring, in a way that will help them develop their faith or move forward in faith that they already have. So we began uh, thinking and strategizing and praying, and Lord, what do you want us to do? So we came up with this idea called bread and butter. So bread and butter, we called it that because scripture is my bread and butter, and we were inviting people to read scripture. So I invited a dozen people 
to read sections of the Gospel of Mark over a six-week period. And they all said yes. And then on the weekends, I would write a commentary and publish it so they could kind of read something about what they're reading. They could read a commentary in the Gospel of Mark because if you're not used to it, it's hard to understand. So in very plain English, uh, laid out for folks that just don't have background in the Bible. And quite a number of these folks don't even own Bibles. I had to send them the link to Bible Gateway so they could read the passages in Mark. And then twice during the six weeks, I created a little video, a 10-minute video that kind of explains what we're doing, explaining what the text means, and explaining how we can not only be followers of Jesus, but how we can help other people at the club grow in their faith or find a faith of their own. So it was so cool. I loved it. So that was, we did that for six weeks. And now when I see those folks at the club, we often have conversations about, oh, what did you think about this passage in Mark? And did that help you grow in your faith? And are you able to reach out to other people with that? Bread and butter. I love it. But the key here is that the Trinity is already working at this golf club. I didn't bring the Trinity there. I didn't bring Jesus there. Jesus is already there working in the lives of other people. All I did was discover what he's already doing. He's calling me into mission. He's calling you into mission. He's calling our church into mission. We're already on mission. Could we improve that in the coming months? In the power of the Holy Spirit, yes, I believe we can who is the God we show? It's the Lord Jesus. And it's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's my bread and butter. I pray it would be yours today as well. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, you are the who. And the very nature of the relationship of you to the Father, you to the Spirit, it's a little complicated for us uh, finite human beings. Thank you that uh, theologians did work on this for three centuries, a long time ago, and that it has stood the test of time. And Lord, we're so thankful that uh, you call us into the same mission that you're already on. Do you empower us for that, motivate us for that, and that we might be a church, Grace Church Roseville, that is truly on mission in this community and around the world. In Jesus' name, amen.